Welcome to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhamford.org. We are, uh, we're trucking away along in this series still called, called Tighten the Knot, where we're looking at what it takes to have biblical marriages. What does a biblical marriage look like in not just our congregation, but in the world? So the first few weeks, we've largely talked about uh, the philosophies of marriage, right? And last week, Jeff talked a, a great job about being single last week. Uh, but the weeks before, we talked a little bit about submission. We talked about service. Uh, and we've laid the groundwork for the next few weeks, because over the course of the next few weeks, what we're going to do now is take a look at the things in our marriages that can cause turmoil or simply things that, that come up in marriage that maybe you weren't expecting or you don't know how to, uh, to handle those things. And so uh, I don't know about you, but when I first got married, I was under the illusion that, um, man, I was, I was going to crush marriage. Like it was going to be so great. It was going to be easy, right? Like a walk in the park. Because I saw my parents in their marriage. I had a good good kind of window into what a, a good, healthy marriage looked like. And, and maybe you're like me and you thought the same thing when you got married, like easy, no problem. Um, I mean, because the reality is you dated for at least a little bit of time, at least most of you, I hope, dated for at least a little bit of time and kind of weighed the pros and cons of, is this for the right person for me? And then after dating, you thought, you know what, I like this person enough to get engaged to this person. And again, kind of weighing the pros and cons of this person being in your life versus this person not being uh, being in your life, uh, and then eventually you decided to you decided to you know get get married, and maybe you thought easy, easy. This is going to be easy because I, I I know that there is no one else in the world that is going to compliment me better than this than this person. So like I said, when I got married, I thought I was going to crush it, no problems, except uh, because we got married so young. Like, there were some issues that crept in that I just wouldn't have assumed would have been issues. Now, to be fair, we got married when we were 22. Uh, my wife wanted to get married uh, at, at or before the same time her grandparents got married. When her grandparents got married, her grandpa, I believe, was 18 and grandma was 17, right? And so, like, to Sarah, we were behind at that point in our lives. I was like, I'm 22. Like, I just want to figure out, like, how to do math. Like, that's all I was, you know, I didn't, I, marriage wasn't even on the floor, but we were really, really young at that point. And, and, um, you know, we were both still in college, like I said, and uh, none, neither of us had had a real job in our lives up until that point, except selling overly embroidered jeans at Buckle at the mall. Like that was the extent of our, of our work history. Um, and uh, we had some lifeguarding gigs and, you know, Sarah didn't have much more experience than that. So like, we're like, we're getting married. We had never had big kid jobs before, like big, real adult jobs at that point uh, in our lives. And, uh, and a month after getting our first, first jobs, we got our first big kid checks, right? And I remember two things that happened when my first check came. The first thing was, I was called my parents right away. I was like, dad, how come my check isn't as much as my check should be? Like there's this person called uh, income tax that took a lot of my money. And there's this person called social security offset that took a bunch of my money. Like, like what does FICA mean? So I wasn't super pumped uh, about that. I was actually very sad about that. But then the next thing I remember was thinking to myself, wow, like I have actual money for the first time in my life. Like, I, like, like actual money, not like Ed Hardy shirt money, but like actual money for the first time in my life. And so I thought to myself, man, how am I going to spend this money? 
Now, you may be thinking to yourself, like, well, it's not just up to you. I didn't know that. Like, in my head, my wife and I had two very different, you know, thoughts regarding how it is that we should spend our money. Uh, She wanted to save it and buy a house and decorate the house. Like, that was my wife's goal. Like, let's make a nest for all of our our chicks that we're going to have in our house, right? And I wanted to go get food with it. Like, that was the extent of my planning at that point in my life. Right, because we had a, a, a rental property that we had, or we didn't own it, but we were renting, right? And then we had two cars, and those cars were paid off, and we didn't have any student debt. And so we were like, to me, I was like, well, what else do you do with money? Like, we have, we have clothes, we have all of our stuff. Why do we need to buy a house? Like, let's just go eat some food with the money that, uh, that we got. So here's the reality. Uh, we had very different priorities at the time. And the, re- the, the truth is, most of the time, we still do. Right? In marriage, there's this constant struggle between what you desire, what your spouse desires, and then what is best for your family. Okay? There's three competing you know, areas there. The first is like, what you want to be selfish with. The second is what your spouse wants to be selfish with. And the third is, is, what, is what is best for your family. And that's a tension we're going to constantly have and struggle with in our marriage, thing that we have to manage. And to be clear, this isn't just about money. Right? This can be about your job the way that you view your job versus the way that your spouse views your job versus the best decision that you can make about your job for your family, right? It can be about how you raise your kids, how you think you should raise your kids versus how your spouse thinks you should raise your kids versus what's best for your family, right? It can be all the way down to like what side of the bed that you sleep on or how often you and your spouse have sex, right? Like all of these things are real and can be run through this very same paradigm. And so in marriage, there's this constant battle between our spouse's selfish interests, your special interests, and what's going to be healthy for your family. And when I say most healthy, I'm not talking about this idea of uh, like from a clinical standpoint, I'm saying most healthy from a biblical standpoint. What would the Bible say is the healthiest way that our marriage should function? So what is it that God wants you to do in your marriages when all of these things come up? So I'm going to go, go on a pretty big limb here and assume that if you are in here and you have been married, there are times where you simply feel like it is impossible for you to get along or get on the same page as your spouse. Okay? I don't think that's a very big stretch. I think there are all times where you're like, yeah, no, we are definitely not on the same page right now for whatever, for whatever reason. All right, think back to your own life. Think about the last big argument you got into with your spouse. Right, if you're being honest... My guess is that argument came about because you wanted to get your way and your spouse didn't let you, <laughs> right? Or, or maybe it's simply because the, like, like they wanted things their way or you were just simply being selfish. Like, I want to buy a new boat. No, we don't have the money to buy a new boat. You never let me buy anything for myself, right? Conversations like that. Or I think I want to get into a new career that's more exciting. Great. How are we going to pay for that new career and that schooling and pay? Are you going to get paid the same amount in that or are you just going to get paid like on the dreams that you have about that career, right? You always ruin the the wow with the how. How dare you do that? These are my dreams. Or it's been three months since we've had sex. Don't you think we should pursue each other a little bit more? And that's all you want from me, right? You can view all of these things through that paradigm and on and on and on. You want your way, your spouse wants their way, and and we just get to get into these ridiculous bickering arguments for no reason, largely for no reason. Sarah and I got into one of these ridiculous bickering arguments yesterday. We were outside trimming trees, right? And we had a lemon tree sitting there, bush, tree. I don't know, a farmer will correct me later. 
And I had one idea as to how we should trim the lemon tree. And my wife had another idea as to how we should trim the lemon tree. And we got in a fight over trimming a lemon tree. Like, are you joking me? Is that the most 30s argument, like married argument you've ever heard in your life? Like, no, that lemon tree, no, don't cut that too. It's not going to produce as many lemons. Like, we don't eat all the lemons anyway. It doesn't matter, right? But these ridiculous arguments of I want my way, they want their way. And so because of that, there is tension in the midst of our, of our marriages. And so what is, it, like, what is it that we should look at then? Because when, when we're looking at these arguments, we're looking at these bickering, we're looking at tension in our marriages, we need to come to an understanding that, that one of the most divisive things in marriage is indeed money issues. So that's what we're going to talk about today. The survey I saw on this most recently is from 2018, so it's a, it's a little bit dated at this point, um, but the data says that 43% of people who have gotten a divorce, 43%, have done so because of disagreements about money. That's a high number, 43%. And we would know, basic maths would tell us and stats would tell us that, that 50% of people who get married, it ends in divorce, right? So that means 25, roughly 25% of people who get married in the U.S. have gotten a divorce because of money. One in four people have gotten a divorce because of money issues with their spouse. That's the reason they split up, right? And finance, they're a hot topic in marriage. They can be insanely stressful, especially when one spouse wants to go grab lunch and the other one wants to buy a house with your income. Like those two things aren't always compatible, and if we're not careful, we can kind of get caught up in this comparison game of like, well, look what they have. How come we can't get those things? And I certainly don't know everything about, about your financial situation, nor do I want to know everything about your financial situation. I definitely don't have a silver bullet to fix all of your financial woes in your marriage. However, through my study and through some of my own experience, hopefully we can learn a couple of principles that are going to help us stay focused on the main thing, which is God. And so having the right perspective on our finances is going to serve a few important uh, purposes in your married life. The first thing is it's going to keep God at the center of your marriage and, and, and in control of your life, not money. And it will keep money in its rightful place a few notches down in the priority list. So let's get God's perspective on all of this, okay? Here's the first thing you need to understand about money in your relationship, and hear me on this. If both of you work, if both of you work, you have dual income. Congratulations. There's no such thing as his money. There is no such thing as her money. Every single piece of money that you bring in, if you call yourself a Christian, doesn't belong to either of you anyway. It's all God's. I don't care how much money you bring in, 100% of it is God's if you call yourself a Christian. Every other thing that we are talking about this morning stems from this point. It hinges on this concept. It's a concept in the Christian church that we call stewardship, that God has entrusted each of us with a portion to both grow and give away, to steward well. Basically, biblical stewardship is this. Everything is God's, not ours. What we have, we have been given to care for, for God's glory alone, period, full stop. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, every faculty you have, your power of thinking or of moving your limbs from moment to moment is given you by God. If you devoted every moment of your whole life exclusively to his service, you could not give him anything that was not, in, in a sense, his own already. God owns everything. 
all of it. There is no such thing as your money. There is no such thing as your house. There is no such thing as your car. There is no such thing as your clothes or your jewelry or your boat or your lemon tree. It's all God's. Every single piece of it, everything that you have is because of God, and in turn, everything is his. Psalm 24 tells us very clearly in verses 1 and 2 this. It says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who, in, uh, and all who live in it, for he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Psalm 24, it goes on for numerous verses, and everything in Psalm 24 is predicated on verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. That And then it gives like reason after reason after reason after reason as to why everything in the earth is God's. And I think of it like this, right? Like God has entrusted me with a, with a plot of land to care for. That's not fair. That makes me sound like a farmer. God has entrusted me with property to care for, to manage, to be able to, to steward. Well, I don't own it, right? The bank does. Just kidding. God owns it. And at some point, I will give back to him what is his. I want to prove to him that I am a good steward, that the things that he has trusted me with, that I am going to steward those things well. And so because of the fact that I steward those things well, I am going to help grow his kingdom as well. Uh, When Sarah and I first moved to Hanford, we just wanted to get into a house in a good school district and just like this is home base. This is where we can start, and we can find out where we want to put roots down, like what house we want to put roots down in later. So we got into a house, and great house, good little, little home in, in Hanford, big inside, small outside, as, as is the uh, operating procedure for a lot of houses these days. And then COVID shut everything down, and my wife realized that she didn't want to get trapped inside of our home with five children for an entire day, for weeks at a time right? So she was like, hey, we got to (laughs) move. Now, to be fair, we were trying to figure out, like, where is it that we should go before that? And so we're looking online. We're trying to find different properties. Like, we want a space for not only our kids to be able to run and play, a space for our kids to be able to go outside for sanity, but also because we think it's good for our kids to go outside and play and not be stuck on technology all the time. So we wanted that, but we also wanted a space where we could bring people to our home to be able to, to not just entertain people for the sake of entertaining, but to bring people into our home to let them know that we care about them, that we want to extend the kingdom of God with the things that we have been entrusted. And so because this, we, we, you know, because that we bought a, a property and the house is tiny, but the yard is big. And so like, man, we'll host you anytime from like March through November. Wintertime, you're not allowed in our house. And we can't barely fit around our kitchen table as it is. But we want to steward the things that we have well in order to help grow the kingdom of God, right? I want to give my life and everything in it to him because I am compelled by his love to do so. And as a man, this is kind of liberating, right? Like like men, oftentimes we carry this, this burden, it feels like, to make sure that we are providing for our family, that, 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 that tends to be our, our MO, and it takes pressure off me because, to provide because God is our provider, right? God is going to take care of me, but it also excites me to be able to use wisdom and work hard because I am caring for the time, the money, the talent, and the relationships that he's given me. I get to steward all of those things. And yeah, of course, I'm going to work diligently. This doesn't give me an excuse to be lazy or anything like that, but the reason I work is to steward, not strive for more income, and that's a, that's a mindset shift, right? The reason that we work hard, the reason that we steward 
is because we want to show God glory, not because we, we want a bigger paycheck, right? Like, like what would a coworker say if you got a promotion and your first response was like, yes, I get to manage more of God's stuff, right? Like that's weird. That's otherworldly. People don't think about that, right? The mo- like first thing that we think of is like, oh, awesome. We'll be able to, maybe we'll pay down some bills or I can finally get a new car, that shiny boat or whatever, Uh, We can do all of those things, but it's a mindset shift for us to be able to say, wait, God has entrusted me with more. I'm going to trust God with more of his, or or I get to, God is trusting me with his stuff. I want to manage his stuff to the best of my ability, right? And it's strange, but if we're going to be honest about our finances and what they have to do with God, we have to come to the conclusion that none of it is ours in the first place. Zero of it is ours, and God wants us to grow his kingdom, but like God talks about how we should steward and what we are given in Matthew 25. It's verses 14 to 30. And this is a pretty common parable, and it's talking about the kingdom of God, but it is talking about the kingdom of God and relating it to wealth and building money and generosity. So this is what it says, starting in verse 14. It says, again, it will be like a, like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one, he gave five bags of gold, to another, two bags, and to another, one bag, each according to his ability. Okay, I want you to hear that piece. Each according to his ability. Okay, when, when you are faithful with a little, it's going to say this later on, when you're faithful with a little, God's going to give you more to be able to steward, to be able to manage. Then he went on his journey. Verse 16, the man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work. Interesting way of saying that, but he put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more, but the, but the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. This is my favorite line in this passage. It just gets skimmed over. Come and share your master's happiness. The fact that he stewarded what God had gave him well made God happy. Come join me in my happiness. Come share in your master's happiness. It says it again, verse 22, the man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I know that you are a hard man harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seeds. So I was afraid and I went out and I hid your gold in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I, that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers. So that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. For whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Man, that's rough. 
That's, that's hard. But this is all stewardship, right? And granted, like I said, they're talking about the kingdom of God here, right? But I don't think it's a mistake that they're talking about the kingdom of God and they are using money to be able to relate that to people. It says, hey, look, here's a bunch of money. Make it work, steward it well. Put your money to work. Do more things with that to make sure that you are stewarding all of these things well. God expects us to grow and steward what he has given us, not dig a hole and keep the money safe. God doesn't need our help keeping his stuff safe. He wants his stuff to grow. He wants his kingdom to grow, and he wants us to take care of it so we can, in turn, grow the kingdom. Right, so with stewardship as our foundation, recognizing that if you call yourself a Christian, nothing is yours in the first place, what's push on to what, that pers- what our perspective in marriage should be when it comes to money? Now, I want to call time out here for just one second. Yeah, if you're here with us for the first time, I think this is the first time I've talked about money in a year. This is not the church grabbing your money from you. Okay? And there are also other ways to be generous outside of money. That being said, we're in a marriage series and we recognize that one of the biggest issues in marriages comes from money, okay? So that's why we're specifically singling out and talking about money. So stewardship of our foundation, what is our perspective in marriage? Every single one of you in this room needs to recognize that you are one of the wealthiest people to ever walk the face of the earth in the history of the world, universe, ever, big words all the time. All of us are, and I recognize none of you are Jeff Bezos, and if you are, you have a giving problem, because I would know if Jeff Bezos went to our church. And I recognize that, right? Like, none of us are billionaires, but in context, you have more than the vast majority of people in the entire world. So we have to be grateful for the things that we have, because we have abundantly more than we could ever need. And by the way, you know how I know that we have more than we need? Because of these things that people call first world problems. Everybody heard about first world problems, right? These issues that we make bigger issues than they actually are because of convenience, right? Like my house is such a mess. I have stuff everywhere. Congratulations on having so much stuff that you can't walk through your house, right? Like that's a problem in the, uh, in the first world. Or we have nothing to drink at home except the, the endless supply of drinking water whenever I want it first world problems. But it, but it tastes funny. Well, don't live in Lemoore. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Sorry if you live in Lemoore. <laughs> or there's a one pillow is too low, but two pillows is too high, and I'm scared I'm going to get a stiff neck, right? Like if you're over the age of 30, that just happens. Yeah, I woke up that way this morning. Or my favorite, my charging cable doesn't reach quite far enough for me to lay flat on my back in bed, right? Best $20 purchase I ever made. Get a six-foot-long charging cable, you're good to go, right? First world problems, though. That's how I know that we have more than we would ever need. Emphasis on need, right? If these are real problems you've experienced at some point, remember, you have more than you need, and none of it's yours anyway. None of it is yours anyway. So we steward well, we're grateful for what we have, and when you and your spouse get to that point, you need to come to to an understanding that you are in this together. Like you have to be on the same page regarding what it is that you think God is, like what you think God-honoring stewardship is. God, like honoring God with your money. If you both understand biblical stewardship and you both respond to wisdom. This isn't going to be hard. Like money should not be hard. 
if you have a basic understanding of stewardship, of biblical stewardship, of how your money should, should act in your marriage. Or maybe a better way to say it, how you, you act with your money in your marriage. But if you're unequally yoked, as what scripture would say, and one of you has one concept of stewardship and the other just wants to spend money haphazardly, this is going to be a massive issue for you. This is going to be difficult for you. So you need to get on the same page, learn what God is asking of you and stick to it together. So then the question becomes, what is it that God is calling you to do? Specifically with your money, what is it that God is calling you to do? Well, the entire reason we are on earth is to make God known. Anybody ever asked you, what's the purpose? Like, why did God create man? To make God known. That's it. To make disciples. Like, we should be glorifying God with our lives so more people can glorify God with their lives. That's it. Welcome to church, right? Like, you want to know what we're about? We want you to become a disciple. That's it, because that's what we believe the Bible teaches. But Christians believe that God, we believe that God created everything, the entire earth and everything that lives on it. And it's all God. God knows each person individually from, from the baby who unfortunately like lives just a few minutes to the great grandmother who celebrates her hundredth birthday. Like God created all people. God loves all people. He made people to worship him. He made people to enjoy him and enjoy a relationship with him forever. Right? God wants you to love him and love each other. In, in the Gospels of Mark and Luke, Jesus is asked, what are the most important things a, a person should do? And Jesus responds, hey, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And we believe these things. And we say amen to these things. And we write it in like 700 font up on our wall in the foyer because we believe these things so deeply. But when it comes to money, we get all weird about it. Right? Like, God, you can have everything. You can have every single part of my being, but just don't look at my checking account. Don't look at my bank account because all of that is mine. I'll even serve in kids' ministry. Just don't look at my bank account. I'll serve with junior hires if that's what it takes to, to make you not look at my bank account, God. Like, that's what, that's what I would be doing. You can have everything else. So let's draw a line then into terms of what that means about money. Like, if we believe that the purpose of us being on earth is to be disciples that make disciples, if that's what we believe, then what does that mean in terms of money? Your money should go towards making disciples. That's what that means. Right? Am I, am I wrong in that, in that logic? And I don't mean you should give 100% of what you make to the church unless you want to, in which case I'm not going to get in the way of that. But I think there is some nuance here. I think in order for you to have a successful marriage with your money, you need to assess what your needs are. You need to assess what your, your wants are. And then there's this third category of the, just the buying things because you feel like it in the moment, that consumerism category over here. In order to make disciples with your money, like people in your family that you are responsible for, like though you are responsible for making those disciples in your life, you need to make sure that you have the things that you need, right? That first category, that need category. Are you able to pay your mortgage, right? Are you taking care of your rent or your mortgage? Do you have food on the table? Do you have something to get you to work and back? right, to be able to have some sort of means of income, just that like basic needs category. Yeah, so that's the first thing, and then it's like the, the wants category. You have your wants, things that you would genuinely enjoy, 
right? Maybe like a, a sweet riding lawnmower, maybe a new pair of shoes, things that you would genuinely enjoy. Maybe you're fiscally responsible about, you save up to be able to get these things. And you're like, okay, these aren't bad things. But then you have this other category because you have needs, you have wants. And then you have this, this last category, which is what gets Americans and American couples in particular into the most trouble, and that's the category that's simply unwise spending that's largely based on impulsive or like attractive marketing. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that most of the things that fall into this last spending category, this consumerism spending category, have nothing to do with making disciples and everything to do with making you feel good about yourself. That's a hard truth. And so, so establish your spending habits as a couple, right? Establish your spending habits and take care of your home, take care of your people. But I would say that you need to avoid excess. And not just avoid excess, but, but one of the ways to combat excess is to give generously, right? Luxury by definition means excess, extra, lavish, okay? Well, then I've established my spending, I have my needs, I have my wants, and now you're saying you want me to live generously. Well, how is it? How much should I give away? How should I live generously? Okay, this, this is the same question to me as when I would talk about sex with junior hires or high schoolers, and their question would be, well, how far can I go without actually committing a sin? Right? Like, how far is too far? I would get that question all the time, like, you are asking the wrong question. It's not how far you can go before you commit a sin, it's how is it that I can best honor God in that aspect of my life? That's the question we need to be asking. And so the same goes for money. It's not, well, how much should I give then? How much should I give to be able to, to live generously? Like, okay, let's throw a number out. You make a million dollars a year, congratulations. How much should someone who makes a million dollars a year give away to live generously? I don't know. Is it 10%? We talk about a tithe all the time here, right? Not all the time. We talk about tithes when we're talking about money. It's not a weekly thing. <laughs> so is it $100,000? Is that how you live generously in your life? You make a million dollars, you give away 100000 Cool. Maybe you make $50,000 a year. Okay, cool. Maybe if we're looking at that tide, that 10% number, maybe it's five grand. What if you made $5 million a year? What does generosity look like at that point? Is it $500,000? Because that's 10%. I and mean, we could do math all day. Maybe you're, you're Aaron Judge and you're about to sign the largest contract in recent Major League Baseball history and he's supposed to make over $600 million in his next contract. Dumb money. What does it look like for him to be generous? Does that mean he's going to give away $60 million? I don't know. I can't put a number on it. And I think too often churches put a number on it. I'm not going to paint with broad strokes here. Because for some people in here, 10%, man, that is massive. That is going to be a big deal in your life. But if you're making a million dollars, you probably don't need $900,000 a year to live. Need. Now, granted, California, okay, millionaires are safe. If you make $2 million a year, you don't need one point. <laughs> we probably don't need that much. And I'm not going to say everybody who makes six figures, you should give away this certain percentage. That's between you and God. Here's the issue. Like, the key is to be utterly, completely, and wholeheartedly satisfied in God and obedient to God. That should be your goal when it comes to generosity, when it comes 
to giving. And in fact, your gut reaction to this entire proposition gives you a hint on your true perspective on stewardship. If you're like wiggling in your seat a little bit and you're like, I would never give that much money. Okay, check your heart. That's cool. That's between you and God. You don't have to answer to me. You got to answer to God about the whole thing. And our money should be about making disciples, right? So often we just reduce this idea of generosity. You got to give to church. You got to make sure you tie to the church to keep the lights on, right? Like if that's our view of what giving is, of what generosity is, we have completely and totally missed the mark regarding what it looks like to live a generous life. I actually had a conversation with a friend of mine the other day, one of my friends that I was with up in Arnold, and um, we were talking about money, right? We were talking about finances and all that stuff. And man, he comes at me and he's like, you know what? That online giving, I, uh, online giving is the worst. He said, I would never do online giving. He said, I don't want to do set it and forget it because I don't feel it at that point. Like I want to take, I want to write my check physically. I want to take my check and I want to put it in the offering plate or put it in the black box in the back or, or whatever it is that I want to do. And that is my spiritual act of worship. I was like, hey, that's cool. Like however you want to give is is, is totally okay. And he told me, he was just like, you know, I, I, I don't even feel it, that putting into the offering plate is more meaningful because you can feel the money going to the local church. Cool. That's how you want to, that's how you want to give, that's fine. But I challenged him on it, and I told him, like, I don't think the way that you give impacts whether or not you feel like you're giving enough to the kingdom. I said, I actually think it's not the mode, it's the amount. Like, I think I think, like I told him, Sarah and I give every single month, and we do a full tithe. We do 10% of, of our money. It goes straight back to the church, which is always funny when I think about that, because I give 10% back to the church, and they give it back to me, and it just is like this endless cycle over and over and over again. Um, it's just a thing that we do. But our gift affects how Sarah and I live our lives. Like that tithe affects how Sarah and I live our lives. If I didn't tithe, you can bet I would not be driving the truck that I'm currently driving right now. Why? Because it affects our lives. Because I could afford something a whole lot nicer that didn't have holes in the seat, right? Like it affects our, our lives. So the next day, me and my buddy are talking again. We're talking about the whole thing, and he told me that, that he got convicted in our conversation. And I wasn't trying to convict him. I was just trying to win an argument because that's what guys do when they get together. So he said, I was just, and he told me that he's only giving 5% to his church right now. He said, I'm only giving 5%, and I don't even feel it. Maybe that's why you don't feel it going to the local church, man, because it's not affecting the way that you are living your life, and he felt like he needed to up it. And I know church, like I said, we use the term, term tithing, and it means 10% of your income. It's kind of the biblical standard for giving. You know, the reality is, is that number is actually an Old Testament number. We get that number from, from the Old Testament, and you know there's no standard for giving in the New Testament? You know, no standard for giving in the New Testament. You're off the hook. Congratulations. Like it doesn't say give, give 10%, but here's what I think when it comes to giving. I think if the early church saw that most churches are telling people to give 10% of their income and then they're done, I think they would be appalled by us. I think the early church would be shocked by that. Like, hold on, you, you mean to tell me that there are people with, with incredible means and they write their 10% check and then they're just done, but there's still people in need? There's still generosity to be given, and they, like, like, like they've just met their 10%, so they're going to be you know, philanthropic somewhere else or go grow their money somewhere else or pad their retirement somewhere. They're just done after 10%. 
I think the early church would be completely and totally shocked by that. Here's why. In Acts chapter 2, people were literally giving the shirts off of their backs to other people, the food off of their tables to other people. They were selling land. They were selling their own livestock to make sure that everyone was well taken care of. Their generosity was so absurd that in Acts 2.47, it says that they gained favor with everyone. And people were saved. Why? Because of the generosity of the early church. They gave everything. They invited people to come be around their tables. You got need? Not anymore. And so here's your, here's your takeaway for today. You want to make sure that your marriage survives like this war between you and your spouse and your money and like this cycle that keeps going on. Recognize it's not yours in the first place. It's real hard to argue over something that doesn't belong to you. That's the first thing. So recognize it's not yours in the first place. The second thing is be thankful for what you have, that what God has blessed you immensely with, because you're one of the most rich people to ever walk the face of the earth ever. Then make sure you're taking care of your family, and then give it away generously and abundantly. Just give it away. It is a whole lot easier to not fight about money when you recognize it's not yours. It's a lot easier to set financial goals as a couple that when you recognize that it is, it is your job to steward and grow what you've been given. Like, I firmly believe, I firmly believe there are couples who were placed on this earth to make money hand over fist simply so they can give it away. One of my best friends is a guy like this. It's dumb how much money this guy can make. It's like he just makes money and then he just gives it away. And he, like God just keeps giving him more money. He just keeps giving more away. I'm like, how, can I get some of that? Like, how does that happen? Like, I want that problem in my life that you don't know how to give away more money, man. Congrats. And I firmly believe there are couples like that. So they can live lives of generosity so others can look at them and wonder why it is they can give so much money away. Like, how do you live like that? I also firmly believe there are couples and individuals in this room who are white-knuckling their wallet and their purse. And because of that, they aren't growing as a couple, and they also aren't growing as a believer. And that's an issue. If your generosity to God doesn't force you to live a different life than you would otherwise, my guess is you aren't being generous enough. I heard a story about a guy whose goal was to have a reverse tithe or inverse tithe. I don't know. His goal was to give away 90% and live on 10. Yeah, what? That guy's crazy. It's not his money. It's not his stuff. It's God's anyway. So we hear numbers like that, and we're like, there's no way. I would never do that. Why? It's not yours. Give it away. Live generously. And so this is what I want you to do for everyone today, okay? Here's what I want everyone to do today. First of all, right now, take out your checkbooks. I'm just kidding. Don't take out your checkbooks right now. Don't take out your checkbooks. That was a joke. Um, I want you to go home and talk with your spouse. And maybe you're single in here, and maybe you're, you're not married or you're a widow or whatever, um, and you can make these decisions. That's fine. Okay, but I want you to go home and talk with your spouse about the number one issue in marriage, which is money and figure out your financial goals. Figure out what it is that you want to be. Do you want to be known for someone who is living a life of generosity? Maybe for some of you, it's moving from 0% to 1%. That's great. 
You did something. You didn't bury the money in the ground and call it good and just be like, here you go, God. I gave it, I gave it back to you. Every penny is there. I didn't do anything with it. I didn't grow it. I didn't steward it well, but here you go. It's better than that, guy. Is there, maybe for some of you, it's from 3 to 4%. Maybe some of you have been a Christian your entire life and you have never jumped into a full tithe. And maybe it's time for you to do that. Here's, some, here's my challenge for others of you, though, just to get away from that idea of percentages, because I think that makes us a little bit legalistic in the way that we talk about money. What would it look like if you unhitched yourself from the 10% number and simply decided you were going to live as generously as you possibly could? Because you want people to know who Jesus is and your treasure isn't stored here, your treasure is stored in heaven. Right? As I was putting this together, I was like, conviction, conviction, I'm a legalist, 10% to the penny, right? Like, no, God, I gave you your 10%, I can live more generously. All of us can live more generously. I don't know what it is for you, but I know that I stopped caring as much about money when I decided to start actually being generous. Now, it wasn't until I was like in my 30s, like I had preached about money. I had talked to people about money before. I was like, oh, you need to give your money. And here I am like nervous that God isn't going to take care of all of my needs if I simply give back to him. It's like, no, 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 no. Yeah, trust God with your money. Trust, be a good steward of all this stuff. I'm not giving anything. Well, that's not a good look. And so what would it look like, church, if we lived the life of generosity? Man, we could be in Acts 2, 46 and 47 church. This is what it said. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Why? Because the early church was a generous church. And they gave, and they gave, and they gave. Not because we have shiny new cars and shiny new boats, but because we are generous in the way in which we live our lives. So today we're going to reflect on that. And I get it. This is a hard lesson. This is a lesson where people pretend like the church only cares about your money. We don't. We care about your entire life, which is why we're talking about money. And if you're selfish with your finances, my guess is you're selfish with other stuff in your life as well. So today let's sit in this idea of generosity because Jesus has been more generous to us than we could ever be. Jesus went and died on a cross for our sins so we could be with him forever. He literally gave everything that he had to make sure that we could come and know him.